0: You play football because you want to. You play football because it's fun. You play football so you can go out there and pretend that you're Joe Montana throwing a touchdown pass or Emmett Smith going for a long run. And even if those Cowboys are better than you guys, even if they beat you 99 times out of 100, that still leaves. One time. One time.
1: Yeah. One time. Two brothers coach rival Pee-wee football teams, and only one can represent their small Ohio town. Join us as we chat about a role that's not very Rick moranis y dated Archie references, and a distant dad who's a distraction. Then we find out if 1994's Little Giant stands the test of time. James and Allen have to say, Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says, gladiator with the glut. Alan says, as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time, James and Allen have to say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time, James and Alan have to say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief and joining me as always to talk about older movies and do they stand the test of time is Alan Noah. Hey Alan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm excited to talk about Little Giants and uh, we'll get there. Of course. But uh, there was a lot of news dropped recently.
0: Right, right. James Gunn finally announced his plans for the DC universe. And this was something that was in the works for a while. He is going to be DC's equivalent of Kevin Feige. He's going to be the mastermind. Actually, he's going to be kind of more than Kevin Feige because James Gunn's also going to be writing a lot of this content himself. and. He announced this slew of projects and how they're going to kick off Chapter 1 of the DCU. It's no longer the DCEU, which was a terrible name for the DC Extended Universe. Now they're just going with DCU. And it officially kicks off with Superman Colon Legacy that James Gunn is writing. It's coming out in 2025, and it's about a young Superman and how this Superman, Clark Kent, deals with his Kryptonian heritage and his human upbringing, and there's going to be a new Batman based on The Brave and the Bold. So it has like this uh, Batman and Robin dynamic with Bruce Wayne and his son, Damien. That sounds really interesting. There's going to be a Supergirl movie, a Wonder Woman kind of prequel TV show, but it's not really about Wonder Woman. It's about Thermoscara, Thermocera, I never know how to pronounce that, but their island like years before Diana was born, uh, not a Wonder Woman movie and some other projects. Which ones are you most excited about, James?
1: Well, there's a lot to be excited about here, and there's going to be a couple movies that we're going to see that are going to be the last remnants of what I guess you can call the Snyderverse or the, you know, the, the first go at the uh, DC movies. The EU kind of? Exactly, the DCEU. You know, you had your Henry Cavill Superman and uh, you are going to see another Jason Momoa, uh, Aquaman later this year, Zachary Levi. Uh, he's going to be in uh, the second Shazam film, uh, Fury of the Gods. Most interesting, for a number of reasons, uh, the Ezra Miller uh, starring The Flash. And The Flash is going to be the thing that kind of bridges the old with the new. I think that's going to be their way of rewriting everything, probably including most of the old cast, leaving room for them to make some sort of cameo at some point, you know, even if they are a little older. So that's going to be interesting. But that is kind of confusing because these movies that you talked about,
0: Shazam 2 and The Flash and Aquaman 2... Also, The Blue Beetle is also coming out this year in 2023. Those movies are still happening, but they're not officially part of the DCU, or maybe they are. It's really, really confusing. I watched the whole James Gunn announcement video, and I've read some other interviews and stuff that he's done this week. It's not clear if Shazam! is part of the DCU. He says that, like, Shazam leads into the Flash, and the Flash resets everything. And then there's the Blue Beetle, which is its own separate thing, and it leads into Aquaman. And then Aquaman leads into Superman, like the new Superman. So, if all of these things are connected, then they are in the new DCU, which is fine. But then If Aquaman is in the new version, Jason Momoa as Aquaman was in the old version, so how are they going to bridge that? It could be just the Flash multiverse, yada, 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 but the
1: announcement that came out really didn't clearly specify what goes where. Basically, my guess is that if Aquaman 2 comes out after the Flash reset, he'll probably even, like film one additional scene to make it make sense? Because everything is rioting on this new DC world. I get that. And yes, they
0: can make it work. It's just, one, confusing in how they announced it. And two, there were some conspiracy theories, and I'm using conspiracy theories in air quotes, but when James Gunn and Peter Safran took over DC, and then they started announcing that Henry Cavill wasn't going to be back as Superman, and Gal Gadot wasn't going to be back as Wonder Woman. There was some Twitter talk about, yeah, you know what is going to somehow manage to survive into this new era of DC? Peacemaker and Aquaman. You know why? Because Peter Safran is a producer on Aquaman, and James Gunn's wife is on Peacemaker. So won't that be interesting if those two projects end up continuing? And now it seems like Aquaman will continue. There was even a hint that maybe there will be a third Aquaman movie. And Peacemaker isn't necessarily getting a season two, but Waller, this new HBO Max show, it's going to revolve around Amanda Waller, and it's going to feature Team Peacemaker. So James Gunn's wife has a role in that show. And to be clear, I like her character. I like her as an actor. She's great, but... You know, it does seem like maybe those uh, people on Twitter maybe did have a point.
1: Yeah, possibly, but uh, you know those are the old shows and old movies. There's a couple like they're not really saying where they exist. They're in their own little universe. They're calling Elseworlds, uh, like Robert Pattinson's the Batman, the Joker film, the standalone ones. They're not going to be involved in the wider universe as a whole, but they are going to have their own sequels to themselves. Like there's going to be the Batman Part Two, and the rumor has it the Joker sequel is going to be a musical. Right, with Lady Gaga playing Harley
0: Quinn. Yeah. The whole Elseworlds thing, like, I understand it. Like, I get that that's what they do in the comics. But there was one quote from James Gunn where he said, This chapter, chapter one, is being designed to minimize audience confusion and maximize audience engagement. You know, that's a statement that's just full of corporate buzzwords. But minimize confusion... I don't know that they're succeeding at minimizing confusion. If you're going to have the sequels to old properties and then new properties, you're going to have the Batman part two with Robert Pattinson. And then they're also going to be making this other Batman movie with him and his son, Robin, and that's going to be connected to Superman. But the Robert Pattinson isn't connected to the wider universe. And the thing is, James, you and I, we're nerds. We get it. Listeners to the Test of Time podcast, you're all very smart. You get it. But not everyone does. There are people who are more casual fans who very well might be confused by two Batman movies where there's two different Batman and one's connected to Superman and one isn't. Like,
1: I don't know. This seems pretty confusing to me. I think they're treading lightly right now. I really think they're trying not to piss anyone off. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these things aren't really going to happen. The
0: Batman Part 2, that just makes good business sense. That movie made a ton of money. Joker Part 2, I mean, I despise the first one, but it did really, really well. It was critically acclaimed, so it makes sense that they would do it. And I think that one's maybe in
1: production or pre-production already? Maybe, but while I think the Batman was uh, successful and deserves a sequel, I think another well-done Batman film in this new universe would be just as good. All people want is a good Batman film. They're not tied to Robert Pattinson the way people maybe would have been drawn to see uh, you know, The Dark Knight Rises because they were so drawn into the first two films. I wouldn't be surprised if that one fell through, but I also think they're not going to doubt on Matt Reeves who directed that. He's done very well with all of his films, so there's probably a little more politics rather than pure uh, comics in this but i want to just talk about some of the uh titles that are coming out in these new series um something i'm very excited about is that the announcement alluded to certain specific uh graphic novels or comic runs done by specific uh writers because i have always thought this is a no-brainer al when you have an ip character an established character and you have like 80 years uh, of stories Just pick the best ones, you know, pick the ones that the fans love. And sometimes they do their own thing and they make up their own powers and it's like, don't do it. Just do what people like. And I'm very encouraged by some of the books that they're basing their stuff on. And I think this stuff could be really cool. Well, yeah. And another thing that James Gunn has said
0: is that he really wants to focus on the writing of these movies. He said something like that the degradation of the writer in Hollywood is like horrible over the past couple of decades and that some of these superhero movies, they start making them and they don't have the third act written and they're kind of figuring it out as they go. And you can kind of see that with some of these movies, and that's a problem. And James Gunn himself is a writer and a director, but he really is placing an emphasis on the writing. And for me, as a writer, like, I love that. I think that is very, very important. And like you're saying, if you're going to base it on good source material, and then you're going to really make sure that there are scripts that work... That is encouraging. He said, you know, with all of these movies and, you know, they're going to have release dates that will be announced. He's like, if it's not ready to film, if the script isn't done, we will not film. We will push the release date back.
1: I don't care if that looks bad. We will not film a movie until the script is solid. Thank goodness, and hopefully not try to make a movie so that the toy line coincides with Christmas. Uh, That's just a recipe for disaster. Yes. Uh, There's two uh, more titles that I want to talk about uh, just very quickly. Um, One, Green Lantern. That's going to be fantastic. It's going to be both Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart, the uh, Green Lantern Corps Jon Stewart, not the uh, comedian Jon Stewart. It's called Lanterns, plural. Yeah. The Green Lantern is such a fantastic uh, superhero uh, storyline, and they squandered it with the movie. But the animated films are fantastic. It has so much potential. James Gunn said it's going to be like true detective. I mean, that sounds cool to me. There's so much potential for the Green Lantern Corps, what they do in, in the galaxy. But there's this random character that that you see pop up here and there. This guy that they announced, uh, Booster Gold, is getting his own, I think it's a series. And, oh, man, Booster Gold, he has such a fantastic premise. It's the thing everyone's uh, fantasized about forever. Uh, Mark Twain wrote A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court where, like, modern-day technology makes you seem like a god in, you know, ancient times. And that's basically the premise of Booster Gold. He's basically kind of a nobody from the future, and he just— Travels back in time with a couple everyday normal things to them that to us make him seem like a total superhero. And he lives like a superhero life and he likes the whole thing. And he's a great character. And it written correctly, that is a fantastic premise.
0: Yeah, uh, it's imposter syndrome, he said.
1: And like, that sounds cool. Right, you know, it's obvious, you know, he fakes it, he gets the girls, he gets the fame, and then he learns to really be a hero. You know, it's so easy to do, but it's also easy to mess up. So I'm excited for uh, all of uh, this stuff. It has potential. They definitely took their time, but this is definitely not Marvel, but DC characters.
0: I mean, they're clearly trying to copy the Marvel formula James Gunn said, everything's connected. That's what we're doing. That's what we're building. The The movies will be connected to the TV shows, which will be connected to the video games, and we'll have the same actors doing the cartoon version and the live action version. And all of that sounds really cool. I... Do you think it's confusing that it's all totally connected, except for the Batman movies with Robert Pattinson, that's not connected, and the Joker movies, that's also separate. And then, well, if you're going to have certain things that are separate, why not just uh, keep doing Wonder Woman movies and make those separate? And is Shazam separate? I'm not really sure. There are still question marks, but all of this news is new, and these things will probably become more clear
1: over time. It could only work out well for us uh, if James Gunn succeeds, and it can only be good for Marvel if James Gunn succeeds, too, because there is a little bit of superhero fatigue and a rising tide lifts all boats. If they can really change up the, uh, you know, it's not the exact same hero's quest uh, in every single movie, I think they can do some fun stuff. And DC's got some fun characters they can play with. I have
0: a lot of faith in James Gunn don't have a ton of faith in the Warner Brothers like media conglomerate. They have made some bad decisions before, but maybe they'll let James Gunn do his thing and not get in the way. Also, uh, speaking of things that are confusing, that Black Superman movie, they announced it a while ago and then you hadn't heard anything about it. Apparently that is still in active development, uh, you know, with J.J. Abrams and Tahanisi Coates. I'm down to watch that, Again, I think it's confusing if you have two different Superman movies, not confusing for nerds like us, but confusing for the casual fan who might just be like, wait, I thought that other guy was Superman.
1: I mean, how many trilogies of Star Wars have been announced from different directors and different actors and different uh, you know producers? There's announcements and then there's production you right. know, It's wait and see with everything. And good luck to Warner Brothers, James Gunn, and uh, I hope it pays off for us, the viewers. Yeah, fingers crossed. But let's talk about Little Giants. This is a movie
0: that I was thinking we could do around Super Bowl time, where a week early the thought occurred to me, hey, maybe the Giants will be in the Super Bowl. They're not. They were eliminated. But it doesn't matter. This movie's not, like, Super Bowl-worthy. It's about pee wee football But I know you love sports movies. I know you love kids' movies. This just seemed like a movie that I could
1: put on the list. And you would be like, yeah, cool, great, sure. Well, I wouldn't say I love kids' movies as a generalization, Al. No, but you love kids' movies where they're playing sports. You're correct in that regard. Of course I'd seen this film. You'd seen this film, right, Al? You know... I'm not 100%
0: sure that I saw the whole thing. As I was watching it, there was one part where I was like, oh, this seems familiar. And it's very, very early in the movie when Ed O'Neill is saying, I brought home this championship and that championship and, of course, a Heisman trophy. Like That felt familiar to me, but the rest of it, I don't know that I'd seen it. I know I'd heard the annexation of Puerto Rico a million times Honestly, I don't know if it's because I saw the movie a million times or because I've heard you, James Brief, say it a million times. And actually, I take that back. I do know it's because I heard it from you a
1: million times. That's possible. Well, this film, uh, it's one of these 90s sports flicks, but I'd say that this film stands out a little bit because it's not as much about the children in the film as much as uh, this film is about uh, two rival brothers, Danny and Kevin O'Shea, played by Rick Moranis and Ed O'Neill. Kevin, uh, Ed O'Neill's character, he's always been the town hero because of his successful football career, while Danny, played by Rick Moranis, he's never really been in the spotlight. And when Kevin decides to coach the local Pee Wee football team, he winds up cutting several of the kids trying out, including Danny's daughter, Becky. The rejected kids decide to form their own football team with Danny as their coach. But there is a rule that says each town can only have one team, so Danny's mighty cowboys face off against Danny's little giants. Will the ragtag group of misfits be able to beat the superior team? Of course they will, because it's a '90s sports film. You know what? There was one moment where I was
0: like, "Are they going to lose?" I was like, no. Why would I even think that they're going to lose? Of course they're not going to lose. That's not how these movies work. But when this movie came
1: out in '94, how did it do at the box office? You know, I found a staggering number for this film, which said that it was a $20 million budget. And Rick Moranis, you know, he has like hit after hit, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Ghostbusters films. I could see him commanding a couple million. And Ed O'Neill, I mean, this is Al Bundy. I mean, he's on the most popular show on television Was it the most popular show on television or was it the most popular show on Fox? Exactly. But it was one of the most popular shows of a young demographic. Everyone our age was watching Married with Children and that's what was important. Did you watch Married with Children? I did.
0: Did you? I never really loved Married with Children. I'd watch it if like my dad was watching it, but it was never really like my thing.
1: Um, I definitely grew tired of it much quicker than The Simpsons, uh, but it was a Sunday night staple for me. And okay. this film had a $20 million budget, as I said, and it opened on October 14th, 1994 at number five with $4.7 million. That weekend, Pulp Fiction, uh, that debuted, and it was dominating at number one with $9.6 million. But uh, the film only wound up making uh, $19 million total, that's a Little Giant's not Pulp Fiction, and, uh, you know, I don't think the film really recouped its uh, investment. Maybe over the years, you know, all the rentals and streamings, and uh, the film probably didn't make much money. Maybe it didn't lose much either, but uh, it certainly wasn't a blockbuster at the uh, box office, like, say, the Mighty Ducks were, uh, you know, in the years before. Gotcha,
0: gotcha. Okay. Um, the movie starts out with Icebox, or Becky is her real name in the movie, the real name of her character, and she wants to play football, but she can't because she's a girl. And, you know, the woke guy in me wants to say, oh, that doesn't stand the test of time because blah, 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 blah. Nowadays, we're more enlightened and yada, yada, yada. But also, no, nowadays, there are still plenty of people who would say that a girl can't play football. And also, it is a theme of the movie that they talk about how she isn't doing something that is conventionally feminine but that's okay because that's what she wants to do and maybe she goes away from it and then she comes back to it and i sort of appreciate the fact that they take that seriously i feel like in the mighty ducks it's like there's a girl and she's good at sports whoa and then that's it that's like the whole entirety of her character i think this movie actually takes some time to Explore what it's like to be a girl who wants to do this male-dominated thing and actually do it in a way that's funny and silly because it's a kid's movie, but also treats it somewhat seriously.
1: Right, and it kind of reminds me of one of the classic Simpsons jokes when uh, Bart is trying out for uh, the football team, and suddenly uh, the viewer thinks that the premise of the show is going to be Lisa suddenly from out of nowhere. She wants to join the team, and she's a a girl, Al. And the coach, who happens to be Ned Flanders, is like, oh, Lisa, that's great. We already have three girls on our football team. Because someone like Ned Flanders is going to be not only inclusive, but he's going to to take anyone who has the ability to play and the thing that they do in this film is they don't waste time with it being uh becky is just a girl but she's actually quite talented right the
0: thing that really caught my eye in the beginning of the movie is that kevin o'shea played by ed o'neill he is a horrible horrible uncle i'm not saying he's a bad coach but like he has it in his head that becky can't play football because she's a girl and And he still lets her try out. And he sees that she is really good and really talented. And then he cuts her anyway because she's a girl. If he really feels strongly that girls can't play football, I don't agree with that. But if that's his feeling, then he should pull her aside, pull his brother aside before the tryouts and say, look, she can't make the team. She shouldn't try out because... She's going to do well, and I'm going to have to cut her anyway, and it's going to be a whole thing, and he doesn't, and I was like, you know what, I just hate him right out of the gate, and maybe you're supposed to, but like, the other kids that are cut, they're not very athletic, you understand why they would be cut if he's trying to build a championship team, and it sucks, and their feelings are, are hurt, and it's bad, but like, with her, it's like, dude, that's your niece, man, you
1: can't do that to your niece. You make an excellent point about the tryout. He definitely should not have had her try out if she had zero chance. And I think that's true of anybody. Um, You don't let them do that. However, I very much disagree with you on your characterization of uh, Kevin O'Shea, uh, Ed O'Neill's character. And that's something I remembered since I saw this film in the 90s. And I remembered being stricken by the fact that uh, he was against every cliche I'd ever seen in a film, in these kind of uh, films. He was actually a pretty nice guy in the end. Uh, Not even in the end. Throughout the film, I thought he was actually – Very nice. How so? Well, the most obvious part that sets him apart from, say, um, uh, Sensei Crease, at the very end, uh, Spike, the really uh, hothead football player, he does a really cheap play on Devin Sawa Jr.'s character. And uh, Kevin says to uh, Spike's dad, if you pull a play like that anymore, like, you're done. Like, I don't want to win that way. We're not doing a sweep of the leg. This is not take out their quarterback. I completely agree with you that he should not have had her try out. I think he was doing the thing where he did not want his niece to um, get hurt. And you know, as a father, Al, you know that football is a violent, violent sport. I think in my head canon, he is completely aware that Becky is uh, she's able to handle herself, but he also thinks that the boys on the teams and the opposing teams would uh, destroy her. he 's wrong about it, but that's what I think in my head canon there's another scene when Becky is very upset about uh, you know that she can't get a guy like junior. I think he's a very nice uncle in that scene and he's like oh becky I-, I think you're beautiful and i think you're just you know you could get any girl and yeah my pretty cheerleading daughter got her but no way you could get him too is he also trying to get her off the team i think that's what a sinister like different kind of film would make him do but i think he's genuinely being a good at heart uncle who you're right has made a couple bad decisions i think all of that is
0: sexist that doesn't necessarily make him a bad uncle I guess. But also, no, it kind of does. (laughs) If you have a, a niece and you're horrifically sexist and you think that your niece can't do stuff just because she's a girl, you're not a great uncle, even if you love her, even if you want to support her. I don't think he cuts her from the team because he's worried about her getting hurt. I think he just thinks girls are cheerleaders, boys play football. That's the way the world works. And I also think it's worth pointing out that at the end of the movie, he doesn't like come around and, like, learn a lesson about that. At the end, he's not like, oh, you can play football. You're a girl and you're still great at football. He never says that. And at the end of the movie, you know, the Giants beat his Cowboys. And then Rick Moranis' character is like, well, we should join teams and we should be one town, one team, and we'll both be head coach. They kind of walk off into the sunset together, agreeing that that's a great idea, But they haven't reconciled this one thing where Kevin believes very firmly that girls can't play football and Danny's going to want his daughter on the team. A line about that would have helped, I think.
1: Uh, You know, I would argue, and it's not explicit, the line, but there's a part when uh, Spike taunts Becky and uh, he pushes her too far and she decides to go in. You know, and that's the cliche. She comes in at the very end and saves the day. Kevin does say one line and he goes, that's my niece and she's pissed off. I think he knows that, It's all about Becky. And I think at that moment in, again, my headcanon, I think he realizes the error of his ways. I also think he does realize the general error of his ways because um, Danny, at the very end, when he is now the coach of the team that's going to be in this Pee Wee uh, League, he goes to his brother and he goes, look – you're the better football person. You should be doing this. But everyone who wants to play football needs to play. And then Kevin goes, you know, I'll think about it. In the smile, that means, of course I will. Because now the great Kevin O'Shea gets to be a a coach for probably a great team. I think it was a a nice ending that he does learn a lesson.
0: I mean, I'm not saying you're definitely wrong. I'm just saying that there's just some element of him that is, Purely sexist that is kind of unresolved and you just kind of leave the movie with a shrug of like, well, that's him. And you can certainly say like from a test of time perspective that there are people like that to this day who think that girls can't do this and that. And it's hard to convince someone who's very stubborn about something like that. So... Eh,
1: whatever. I mean, I appreciated the way they uh, portrayed Icebox. You know, they didn't do any kind of pandering. They didn't have to do any silly things. Like in the Mighty Ducks, uh, the later ones, they have the girls do their figure skating moves. I I did like that Icebox was uh, just straight up believable. She makes a couple clutched uh, blocks or tackles. And, you know, yeah, uh, Kevin might have crossed the line, uh, you know, with the way he treated other people. I thought, if anything, Danny crossed a line by 2023 standards, not necessarily by 1994 standards, because he plays a quote-unquote practical joke on his brother when Kevin and his assistant coach are hiding in the bushes, and they're trying to spy on their rival team to see their plays. Danny... Uh, He doesn't, like, call them out or call the police to, like, get rid of them. He calls the police specifically to say that there are creepy men, like, spying on the children. It's glossed over in one line. But Kevin spends the night in jail, presumably booked on, like, you know, whatever the peeping Tom uh, crime is. That's not a minor thing in 2023. (laughs) I don't know. Were you thinking the same thing, Al?
0: I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking of, like, it's a kid's movie, and that's, like, a silly
1: thing to happen to this character. But what happens to the character in reality, you know? He's now, like, a registered sex offender. Does he spend the night in jail? I think he says he spent the night in jail.
0: In the newspaper, it says, like, local hero arrested. But that's
1: it, Al. The cover, the the above-the-fold cover, banner-to-banner, is local hero arrested. Wow. Uh, It is not a thing to uh, joke about, folks.
0: You're not wrong. I feel like it was just that like
1: he's a smart guy, and so he's going to outsmart his brother that way. Exactly. That's what it was meant to be. There's one Ed O'Neill line I love. Um, It's in the beginning when it's establishing that he's like a tough guy. Someone was eating some uh, Cheetos. And he goes, crunchy or puffed? Kid answers, puffed. And his reply, wimp. (laughs) That's a great line. I don't get it. I don't know why that makes him a wimp. I don't get it either. It's just he's decided like one of those makes you a wimp. I I don't know. It's just his delivery. What do you think of the kid actors in this film? Honestly, they're fine.
0: They're good enough. They do what they need to do. I watched this movie with my kids, and they were both laughing. A lot of their jokes are kind of slapstick. It's not really elevated humor, but it did still work at making my kids laugh.
1: Uh, I think the film is humorous. I think Rick Moranis is adorable in this film, as he always is. It's not like his stupid nerdy 80s hair, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Ghostbusters. It's more like single father, poor schlub. And Rick Moranis, is a great underrated actor. I thought that the wardrobe and his hair really nailed it. And we've mentioned it before. Uh, tragically, his wife had uh, passed away uh, when he had young kids, so he decided to leave acting and just be a, a dad and raise his children. And I, I love Rick Moranis. I've never seen a role that I didn't like of. Is. Here's the thing about Rick Moranis. In
0: all of my favorite Rick Moranis roles, like My Blue Heaven or Spaceballs or Ghostbusters, Parenthood, Little Shop of Horrors, when I think of those roles, those are Rick Moranis roles. No one else could have played those characters. And of course, sure, someone else could have. That's how movies work. And if he hadn't been cast, someone else would have been. And maybe that other person would have done a great job. But I think those roles are just things that only Rick Moranis could do. Who else could be Dark Helmet? Who else could be Seymour? And I mean, I guess we'll find out because they're doing a remake. But he epitomizes those roles. And in this movie, I honestly felt like, Anyone else could have played this role. This wasn't a very Rick moranis y type role, if that makes any sense.
1: That's perfectly fair. I, I think, uh, you know, he plays the role well, I think. Well, he puts his Rick Moranis spin on it. But this could have been played by a number of people. Same with Ed O'Neill's role. Oh, 100%. These are two names I
0: just kind of pulled out of the air, but... I was thinking, what if this movie starred Dan Aykroyd and Craig T. Nelson? Dan Aykroyd I came to because he was in Ghostbusters with Rick Moranis. And Craig T. Nelson, he played a sitcom dad just like Ed O'Neill did. If this movie stars Dan Aykroyd and Craig T. Nelson, it's the same damn movie, right? Like nothing changes, maybe little nuances here or there. But it's the same thing.
1: Right. John Goodman. Like, you could have had some great actors that would have played uh, Ed O'Neill's role, like, uh, very well. Um, But it would have been the same role. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And and that's not, like, me knocking Rick Moranis or Ed O'Neill in this movie. They're fine. But it's just, for me, it's disappointing because I love Rick Moranis in so many of those roles where he is just so magical in what he does that I feel like in this movie, it's just kind of muted. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what he was going for. But I just felt like, oh, this is a Rick Moranis movie where I'm not like, oh, man, this is why I love Rick Moranis. You know, it's just like, oh, here's him doing a movie for a paycheck, I guess.
1: That's fair. This probably was a paycheck film. Um There's a couple things that kind of annoy me in this film. Um, There's one boy, I think it's uh, Johnny. His dad is never around, and uh, that's a perfectly fine trope, and there's actually a lot you could do with that. But the thing that happens at the end is that his dad comes to the game, and the boy like runs through to the end zone to hug his dad, but he's able to evade all of the uh, tacklers and uh, everything to get to his dad. I thought that was a little silly. I never liked that one. Why? As a father, I demand an explanation. I think, if anything, he'd be distracted by suddenly seeing the dad he's been longing for, and (laughs) he would suddenly get, you know, swiped from the side. That's fair. I never liked any trope in uh, sports films where the guy who can't catch starts putting glue on his fingers. I mean, I'm not sure, but isn't that cheating? Maybe in football they're allowed some slight little grip on their hands, but this stuff is like industrial glue. Is that a trope? you see that in other movies? Yeah, you've seen it in other stuff. Like what? Um, I don't know. I've seen it in another film. I feel like I've seen another one. Okay. I will research it and see if I find it. Or maybe I'm thinking that Little Giants is just copying Little Giants. But anyway, I do like the annexation of Puerto Rico. I know, because you literally mention it every
0: time I've seen you for the past seven years to record a podcast, or even if I are just talking about something, you're like, it's like the annexation of Puerto Rico, remember Little Giants? And I'm like, uh, okay.
1: Well, because there's a lot of kids on this team. There's chubbier kids. There's incredibly thin, like comically thin kids, not like too thin, but like, you know, these kids doing a, you know, bodybuilding poses. It's meant for humor, but there's one quote unquote nerdy kid. They don't force him to play football. All he has is he has good coaching and they make him the assistant coach. I always liked that because I thought that was kind of cool. And in the very end, he's the guy who comes up with the play, the, the play he's been alluding to the whole time called The Annexation of Puerto Rico. And he's calculating it on a computer. Did you notice what the computer was, Al, by any chance? Well, I noticed that there was
0: a Super Nintendo hooked up in there somewhere. Was that the computer or was that just like
1: part of the device in some way in my head canon yes it was the super nintendo that was the computer and it's somewhat believable because not with the snes but like with later computers like with the playstation 2 and 3 you always talked about like these being very advanced computers for the time and people stringing like 10 of them together to mine bitcoin or terrorists or making a mainframe by taking like 20 playstations and putting it together, so it's not unbelievable to use a console as a computer, but I always thought that was humorous. I just wanted to know
0: how it worked. I was honestly just curious about it, and I think the answer of how it worked was shut up, it's a movie, and it's just there as a thing to look
1: at and just have the kids point at it and go, ah, Super Nintendo. You know, I like the play itself. It's a pretty classic fake. You know, they hand off the ball to their best running back, Icebox. Uh, she tucks the ball in into her uh, chest and she runs head first. And Spike, he's able to knock her down. He's like, ha, ha, ha. But lo and behold, she was never holding the ball. It was a fake. The chubbier kid, he runs. And, you know, the thing is, he's not able to get Anywhere near the end zone. The only reason they're able to score in the end is through like. Three, at least two laterals to other people. And they're kind of lucky laterals too. So the team gets very lucky that they're able to pull this off in the last play. But the thing is, even if they weren't, the score was tied. So it was going to go to overtime anyway.
0: Yeah, they never mentioned that. They're like, this is it, the last play of the game. I think Eli was like, no, because then if the game ends and it's a tie and it's a playoff game, there will be overtime. Why is it that it has to be on this play?
1: Exactly. There's an incredibly easy way to overcome that, and that's something I think is another small flaw of the plot. The kicker, he has a lot of trouble uh, getting the extra points. Finally, he's able to get at the first touchdown when they're finally able to turn it around after the inspiring uh, halftime speech. They get three touchdowns, and the one kick he's able to get literally bounces on the field goal bar and hits over. Like, it could have been incredibly easy to show. Yeah, he gets the next one, but oh no, he missed the third one. So they're down by a point. And then they somehow get the ball again in a turnover, and they have one more play. It's too far for a field goal, so they go for the touchdown. You're right, like, there's no stakes on this last play, because they're going to overtime. Just make them down by a point. Also, just because the
0: annexation of Puerto Rico is so weird, why is it called the annexation of Puerto Rico?
1: Is it no reason just because it's just kind of sounds funny? Probably because a lot of football plays are named that for absolutely no reason. You don't necessarily want to call it the Big Dipper because like, oh, they're forming in like kind of a Big Dipper look. You know, they could just name it anything like Charlie Horse 7 for whatever reason, just so people won't know. OK, I mean, I guess that still stands the test of time because
0: Puerto Rico is not a state although even if it was that's still a different thing annexation versus being granted statehood right it, it would still be a a
1: phrase that would still work from a historical standpoint i guess yeah i don't know was hawaii like annexed to the united states uh, i'm not sure really sure uh, how the terminology works That's a very good question. I really don't know, but uh, you know, one thing I do like in this film is I really like the uh, the motivational turnaround speech. You know, it's a cliche of sports films that you know the coach is going to say something and they turn it around. But I thought that this one really rings true because there's something that kind of bothers me about you know the weak guys overtaking the truly gifted athletes in that they really shouldn't be able to do it but this film does remind you that yet yeah, 99 out of 100 times these guys will win but remember like the greatest NFL teams in history there's only 16 games in a season now there's 17 but basically no team has ever gone undefeated in a single season the amazing chicago bears from 85 They lost a game like everyone loses a game generally and like just one time. You can beat these guys if you play them over and over and over and over and over. And I do like that as generally something that is slightly believable from these films. I think one of the greatest sports stories of the last five years or 10 years or so was Tom Brady. uh, And they were down 28-3 in the third quarter of the Super Bowl. And, you know, most of the time you're going to lose those games. And the Chargers were up 28-0 earlier this year. But this stuff does happen. And I like that it gave those kids a believable thing. Like, we're not going to beat these guys most of the time. But I guarantee you there is a time that we can beat these guys. And why can't it be today? It rings true for me. I get that. It's not like, we're better than them because
0: we want it more or something that's more cliche. It's like, yeah, we could do this just this one time. Yeah. Maybe that sort of disproves what I said earlier, that that is kind of a Rick Moranis-y halftime speech. Maybe uh, Dan Aykroyd wouldn't have been so believable delivering that kind of halftime
1: speech. Possibly. But uh, in the Little Giants multiverse, like in a lot of the universes, they get absolutely destroyed by the Cowboys, or they barely lose to the Cowboys, as it were. It doesn't matter. A A win is a win. But in this one, just one time they're able to do it. And I do appreciate that, unlike films like The Mighty Ducks, they don't have to do like trick plays. The annexation of Puerto Rico is completely a trick play. (laughs) I'm sorry. I meant a cheating play. Like, they don't need to lasso anyone. Um, no, that's totally illegal. Like, why are they not calling this play? Well, to be fair, they do call the lasso play in Mighty Ducks 2. But a lot of times they don't call plays that are obviously illegal uh, or they're like, wah, wah, tricks. Uh, I I do like that this one is a straight up win. Uh, You know, it's good coaching. Right, 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 right.
0: Well, James, what do you think about Little Giants as a whole? Do you think the
1: movie stands the test of time? Uh, I think it absolutely does. Is this film Shakespeare? No, it absolutely isn't. Is it uh, one of many? Um, Yeah, it is. But I think this is one of the many that does it well. I think they happen to get lucky with a great cast of... uh, Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis, I will admit at the time, loving Rick Moranis and wondering why Al Bundy was in this role, because I didn't quite get him as much in the role, but I've learned to realize that Ed O'Neill is not just Al Bundy, he's actually a fantastic actor, and I like him even more now watching this film. I think that the film does a really good job of making Kevin's character not such an evil, bad, you know, sensei crease kind of thing. You know, it has flaws. And yeah, there's some cringy parts. And Devin Sawa is way too old for for his role. Uh, But I think the film stands the test of time. It's it's cute. Uh, What do you think, Al?
0: You know, because you mentioned Sensei Kreese from Karate Kid, I was getting some uh, Cobra Kai vibes just because of the fact that Kevin O'Shea, who is the hero of this sport in this town, he owns a car dealership just like Daniel LaRusso and like you could kind of see that right like if you're a local hero what do you do for a day job owning a car dealership maybe kind of makes some sense you could use that fame to get people to come down and you know they want to take a picture with you and yeah you can sell some cars that way it's not something that i would have necessarily thought of if it wasn't for cobra kai in this movie but i guess i kind of buy that that makes sense Um, There are some things in this movie that don't stand the test of time. At one point during the game, uh, someone yells, come on, ref, this isn't American Gladiators, or as you would say, American
1: Gladiators.
0: Right, which isn't a thing that anyone would ever say other than you. One of the moms in the stands is like really excited for a kid and she does the Arsenio
1: Hall, like woof, woof, woof. Oh, God, that is such a 90s thing.
0: No, 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 no. That is not the 90s. That is like from one week or maybe like a couple of months from one year. I forget which year in the 90s. That is a super Super dated reference that was super dated a year
1: later. Yes, but people kept using it in screenplays for years throughout the early 90s. And can you name the other movie that we saw that this was done at the very end of the film to celebrate the victory? And it was so cringy. And I think this film is like from 95 or 96. I have no idea. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It was in one of our trilogies, one of our 90s-themed trilogies. Specifically, it was the 90s blank trilogy of of something that happened three times in the 90s. Uh, airplane hijacking? Yeah, well, the airplane terrorism. Yeah, we did uh, Air Force One executive decision and the first one we did was Passenger 57 and when Wesley Snipes kicks the guy out of the airplane, this old lady she gets up and goes, whoop, 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 and it's so cringy, especially from like 1995, because it references yeah, you're right, it's Arsenio Hall when he who's peak popular in the early 90s
0: yeah that doesn't stand the test of time at one point when they're talking about becky and then someone says like oh does she like junior and the response is well does veronica like archie you know what honestly maybe that does stand the
1: test of time because of riverdale eh, archie's an american institution i think people have been reading archie forever but more so because of riverdale today it is something that i think they got a little lucky that it does hold up because of that show in particular
0: I have never watched Riverdale, and I never will. I don't know if, in that show, Veronica has a crush on Archie. I'll just assume that she does, because I don't even care to look it up on Wikipedia. But, like, that kind of made me roll my eyes. But overall, as a movie, it's fine. It works. It does this sports formula that you like to talk about in a pretty decent way, I think. It handles the fact that there's a girl playing football pretty well it treats these characters for the most part like they're actual human beings sometimes they're cartoon characters like when ed o'neill goes flying out the window and lands on his crotch like that's a, a slapstick gag but it made my kids laugh they appreciated it so i'm gonna say it does stand the test of time Oh, the whole thing about how Rick Miranda's wife left them, that's like a thing of like, mom left, I'm in charge now, and so we need to bond any way we can. That whole thing I felt was like really just kind of trite and annoying and like just there to like tug on your heartstrings. It's all very eye-roll
1: worthy to me. Fair enough, but I uh, did want to give the movie credit for not killing off the mother. I thought that would have been a trope that they would have done in the 80s because they would not have done divorce or certainly not the mother leaving the child. Um, I thought that that was interesting because he's like, your mother left us and we don't give up like your mother gave up on us. Right. But yeah, it stands a test of time. I'm probably never going to watch this
0: movie again, but that's okay. I don't know that it got me more excited to watch the Super Bowl, quite frankly. I really am mostly just interested in eating wings. That's really what
1: I look forward to most at the Super Bowl. Um, I like the food. I do enjoy the game. But like the cliche says, uh, I do enjoy watching the commercials as well. It's the only time I watch commercials. Right. I don't know how it cultivated to that, but... Kudos to you, Advertising Gods. Like You made it a theater for us to watch basically 30 short comedic films, occasionally a short dramatic film if it uh, it involves uh, Clydesdale horses. Right. All right.
0: Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we have a very special guest joining the show. My wife, Courtney Noah, is coming back on to talk about Can't Buy Me Love which is an 80s rom-com that
1: I've never heard of. Or maybe I've heard of it, but I really know nothing about this movie. I think I might have caught parts of it at some of my sister's sleepovers, like when she had a friend over. And, you know, they got to rent a a video from either Blockbuster or probably even Florida that, one of the mom-and-pop places. Gotcha. Ours was called Captain Video.
0: What was yours called? There was one called Z-Video. That one had good candy. But... Until then, we want to hear from you guys You're at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know who you're rooting for in the Giants versus Cowboys game. Not the Super Bowl. I mean, that's obviously the uh, Eagles versus the Chiefs. No one cares about that. But who do you want to win in the showdown between the O'Shea brothers? The Giants. Of course, everyone cares about the Giants. They're so cute. But we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.